Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You ready? I was born ready. Advisory Opinions. I'm Sarah Isger. That's David French. And David, another action-filled pod. Yes. We're going to start with the SCOTEX abortion decision. We're going to then move to the cert before judgment petition to the Supreme Court that Special Counsel Jack Smith has brought on that presidential immunity argument. Uh, And then we're off to the races. Then we move to the Supreme Court and that um, dissent from denial by justices Thomas and Alito with a little like, hey, me too, by Justice Kavanaugh. And yeah, we still have to get to all those oral arguments. So um, let's just do this. Let's go quick. Okay, this week, the Texas Supreme Court, lovingly called SCOTEX, instead of SCOTUS, (laughs) get it? SCOTEX. I get it. Okay, Um, (laughs) I'm trying to get you in the lingo, David. I did trip up over it initially. I was like, Scotex? Sco- oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yes. So Scotex has nine elected justices and this came before them as like an emergency shadow docket, if you will, emergency docket, which is going to work somewhat similarly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Basically, a woman and her doctor get a temporary restraining order from what amounts to a trial court in Texas. Uh, saying that she can get an abortion under the medical necessity exemption in Texas law with the new abortion law. The attorney general, Ken Paxton, immediately appeals that. Scotex takes it, and they're going to hold that, no, it has not met the standards, and they overturned the, the TRO. But the whole time, like they put the TRO on an administrative stay while they're getting it. It's a hot mess. So we're going to try to Um, I I think, David, the best way to do this is we'll just do pure sort of process what the opinion says. Yeah. Then I want to do kind of a legal analysis of like higher level. What do we think about that opinion as it applies to the law? Uh, And then three, some of the political ramifications of that. So I just want to read the Texas Health and Safety Code, Section 170A2B2. An abortion is allowed when. Quote, in the exercise of reasonable medical judgment, the pregnant female has a life-threatening physical condition aggravated by, caused by, or arising from a pregnancy that places the female at risk of death or poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function unless the abortion is performed or induced. In this case, Kate Cox, uh, they have two children already. She's 20 weeks pregnant with their third child at the time that this was filed, um, they get a diagnosis of trisomy 18. There's no real 
question that this is incompatible with life. Um, trisomy 18 is a awful, awful diagnosis. Trisomy 18 is associated with very low birth weight, abnormally shaped heads, uh, birth defects in organs that are often life-threatening. Most children with trisomy 18 do not live beyond the first two weeks of life. Fewer than 10% will live to a year. Uh, all will require continuous care and extensive life support um, regardless. Her doctor, Kate Cox's doctor, talked to her about you know, what was going to happen at this point. She was going to need a C-section if she carried the baby to term. She wants to have a third child. She's had two C-sections before. There was some discussion about this C-section potentially impairing her future fertility and chances of successful birth for a future child. Also, perhaps relevant, she has been to the emergency room four times, I believe in the last, was it week, two weeks, in a very short amount of time related to severe cramping, leaking, like this is not going well, blood pressure issues, etc. Okay, so um, the Texas Supreme Court in short, says that she kind of didn't plead the right thing, that despite the doctor saying that in her good faith belief that she met this medical exception, that in fact, she didn't say that it was in her reasonable medical judgment that she met this medical exception. The court goes, I wouldn't say out of its way, but uh, a woman who meets the medical necessity exception need not seek a court order to obtain an abortion under the law. It is a doctor who must decide that a woman is suffering from a life-threatening condition during pregnancy, raising the necessity for an abortion to save her life or to prevent impairment of a major bodily function. The law leaves to physicians, not judges, both the discretion and the responsibility to exercise their reasonable medical judgment, given the unique facts and circumstances of each patient. Nevertheless, this case did not meet that, um, they said, because the doctor did not use the words uh, reasonable medical judgment. So this was a per curiam opinion. It was not, therefore, signed by any of the judges, but there's also no noted dissents. So in SCOTEX, that means you have at least six judges who signed on to this. It's possible it's only six or, you know, one to three other justices um, didn't agree, but just didn't note their dissents, for instance. That's very possible. Same thing that happens at the U.S. Supreme Court, um, although that's uh, five votes at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so let me just walk through a little bit of how that part works, David. Okay. So <laughs> unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, cases are randomly assigned at SCOTAX. You just go in order. So like when a case comes on the docket, it just like a regular case, not an emergency case. Right. Like you start with the chief justice and you just go on down until you've run through all nine and then you start back up again with the chief justice. That's how a study memo gets assigned. Um, that will include a recommendation over whether to grant cert like you'd have at the U.S. Supreme Court. And in that case, perhaps a study memo would recommend a PC, a per curiam reversal, just needs the sick votes. And that chambers that wrote the study memo would then be the author of the procurium opinion. But here's the problem. This is not normal order. This was an emergency petition. So we actually know nothing. It can be totally random at that point, not random in the like going in order, just like random, like who wants it? Given how short this opinion is 
and how sort of sterile the language is, I find it impossible to guess who wrote it. Um, and I know several of the Scotex justices personally, like I have no idea who wrote this opinion. Um, and I, I don't know of any other uh, Scotex aficionados who have good guesses on who might have written it. Worth noting at the end, there's this line that says justices divine and Blacklock concur. Right. Which isn't necessary, right? Because like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so. So they wanted to specifically for it to specifically be known that they're in the majority of this pure curium. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. the most conservative justices on Got the court. It. I would not be surprised if one of them was also the author of this. Um, but no real way to know at that point. Okay. So let's dive into the legal part because, right, the woman and her doctor say she needs this abortion to prevent the future impairment of fertility issues related to having another child. And Ken Paxton, the attorney general, his argument is this is related to the baby's condition. If this baby were compatible with life, if you thought this was a healthy baby, nothing you're saying would mean that you were seeking an abortion. So it's actually not that the pregnancy. Right. Is causing these life threatening conditions or um, the impairment of a major bodily function, but rather because you won't be able to raise this child, you want to abort this child and have another child. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say yes. there? What his argument yes. is that yes. the law is about the pregnancy causing it, but this isn't about the pregnancy causing it. All pregnancies would cause potential fertility issues down the line if you needed a C section. Um, all pregnancies carry risk. The reason she wants to abort this pregnancy is because of the condition of the fetus itself, and that's not part of the medical exemption. Uh, the Texas Supreme Court doesn't address that whatsoever. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> Which is a real argument. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to whether I think it's a good argument, but like it is a real argument. But instead, yes. they just have this distinction they try to draw between a good faith belief that the doctor has that this meets the medical exemption versus in her reasonable medical judgment. I'll just read the sentence because it could, I've read it so many times, David. Oh, I, Sarah, <laughs> don't get me started. Well, get me started on this because I'm about to get started on yeah, it, but go ahead. I'm going to read this, then I'm going to hand it to you. <laughs> yeah. In this case, the pleading state that Miss Cox's doctor, Dr. Domla Carson, believes Miss Cox qualifies for an abortion based on the medical necessity exemption. But when she sued seeking a court's preauthorization, Dr. Carson did not assert that Miss Cox has a life-threatening physical condition or that, in Dr. Carson's reasonable medical judgment, an abortion is necessary because Miss Cox has the type of condition the exemption requires. So she did state that she... Anyway, so I went back and looked uh, at the actual pleadings. Here's what they actually wrote. That was in the TRO. Consistent with Dr. Carson's good faith belief and medical recommendation that Miss Cox has a life-threatening physical condition aggravated by, caused by, or arising from her current pregnancy that places her at risk of death or poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of her reproductive functions if a DNA abortion is not performed. Okay, that was found not good enough. All right, David, go. Okay, uh, here's what confuses me. I I'm going to read a different portion of the of the opinion. It says, Dr. Carson asserted that she has a, quote, good faith belief, unquote, that Ms. Cox meets the exceptions requirements. 
Certainly, a doctor cannot exercise, quote, reasonable medical judgment, unquote, if she does not hold her judgment in good faith. But the statute requires that the judgment be a reasonable medical judgment. And Dr. Carson has not asserted that her good faith belief (laughs) about Ms. Cox's condition meets that standard. What? Okay. It's a total word salad. It's a word salad. It's it's the difference between um, subjective. They're saying good faith belief is subjective, but reasonable medical judgment is objective. And can I compare it to something else that's a mess, David? Yeah. Qualified immunity. Yeah. Right. Good faith mistake is subjective, but we don't use that anymore for officers. Instead, we use uh, clearly established law, which is supposed to be an objective test. This is even less clear than qualified immunity. Well, but here's the thing that's super confusing to me. So here is the sentence. Dr. Carson asserted that she has a good faith belief that Ms. Cox meets the exceptions requirements. Now, let's scroll, scroll, scroll up the opinion to see what the exceptions requirements are. And it begins in the exercise of reasonable medical judgment. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I'm saying I believe in good faith she meets the requirements, which include the exercise of reasonable medical judgment. And the court seems to be saying that what you have to say is in the exercise of my reasonable medical judgment, I have a good faith belief that in the exercise of my reasonable medical judgment. See, that's there seems this whole case seems to be dependent on the use of those that those magical words, reasonable medical judgment. In the in the doctor's specific statement, as opposed to the doctor referring to the statute. So see why I'm extremely confused here. So that. Yeah, no, you're not confused. You've got it. Okay, like that. Yes. They wanted a way out of this. And can I tell you a little bit about why they wanted a way out of it? Please. There is another case pending at the court that's in the regular order, a merits case, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that case is actually on defining that medical exemption, this language right. that we're talking about. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it's a bit of a hot mess in a different way. So right. that oral argument was held at the end of November. We didn't cover it because I think at this point, we're sort of waiting for an opinion. It didn't seem that important based on the oral argument at a state Supreme Court. But now it is. okay. so basically the argument from the plaintiffs in that case is that nobody knows what the exemption means and the state won't tell us, said the attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights during the oral argument. Um, And of course, when Ken Paxton filed his brief in this case, um, meaning, sorry, the Cox case, the one that we actually have the opinion for, he's threatening, not threatening, he said he will. prosecute the doctor, the punishment for that is life in prison if you perform an abortion and you misread the medical exemption. And then here, Sarah, the Texas Supreme Court says, why is basically saying, this is just what the doctors are supposed to decide. Right. Not us. Why are you coming to us in the first place except, yeah, this doesn't count. What? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they're saying this is what the doctors are supposed to decide, but you didn't use the magic words in the pleading in the court. Um, so it's a mess. And, and Sarah, let's go back to the statute, which is also a mess. Okay. So here's what the statute says and the extra, and and this gets to some of my issues with some of the pro-life laws that are out there. It says in the exercise of a reasonable medical judgment, the pregnant female has a life threatening physical condition. So it says it has to be a life threatening physical condition, aggravated 
by, caused by, arising from a pregnancy that places the female at risk of death or poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function. But if you read that literally, it seems to be saying that no matter what the pregnancy does, you can't get an abortion unless there's the life-threatening physical condition. But how does that relate to majorly bodily function, right? So That's right. It's weird. So it's, it's very weird because it could just say that the pregnant female has a uh, condition aggravated by, caused by, or arising from a pregnancy that places the female at risk of death or poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of bodily function. That would be much more clear. But instead, it has that early life-threatening statement, which either means nothing at all, because (laughs) because what life-threatening means is either life-threatening or not life-threatening, but including substantial impairment, or it modifies substantial impairment in a way that that means that it has to be more than substantial impairment. It has to be connected to something life-threatening. It's very weirdly, extremely weirdly drafted. And, and Sarah, we've talked about a lot of weirdly drafted laws. This is weirdly drafted. And this is why I think that oral argument in the regular order case uh, is really interesting to me because you actually hear the justices trying to work this stuff out. So, for instance, Justice uh, Jimmy Blacklock, that justice who I mentioned is one of the most conservative on the court. He notes his concurrence in the Cox opinion here. So he asked, well, does the exception, would the exception, for instance, include allowing abortions as a result of common pregnancy complications like high blood pressure? Well, let me just break this down for, again, why justices aren't doctors and seem to know they're not doctors, but then still way into this. Right, right. So uh, it is true. High blood pressure is a very common pregnancy um, complication. Not all women with high pregnancy blood pressure will die. But all close to all women who die due to pregnancy die from high blood pressure. Right. So it is a life threatening condition to have high blood pressure in pregnancy, even if it's common. And even if it won't often result in death, it is the thing that will kill you. Um, it's why doctors take it so seriously. Like when, yeah. um, you know, I was pregnant during COVID and so I couldn't go into a doctor's office. And the first thing they did was tell me to get a blood pressure cuff at home so that I could take my blood pressure on a regular basis, even if I felt fine. Because the second that blood pressure gets high, they want you in an emergency room. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so like, I, I don't know what the justices plan to do with that. Like, yes, if you have high blood pressure, I would consider that a life-threatening condition caused by the pregnancy. Even if this, you know, there's no certainty that it will cause death, but surely you don't need to wait until she goes into cardiac arrest to say, ah, this high blood pressure has now caused a life-threatening condition. That doesn't make sense. I mean, preeclampsia is going to move fast, you know, or else women wouldn't die from it, right? Like, right. if it were slow moving, we'd be able to, to have zero maternal deaths. Um, so there was another related problem, which is the standing problem in this merits case. The women in question don't have necessarily life-threatening conditions. They're just pregnant. Right. And so the state's arguing that they don't even have standing. And so it came up during the argument, um, like, well, (laughs) wait a second. This is from Justice Jeff Boyd. 
Your position is that in order to seek the kind of clarity that these plaintiffs are seeking, you have to have a woman who is pregnant, who has some health condition that she believes places her life at risk or impairment to a major bodily function. But her doctor says, I don't think it does. And she has to then sue the doctor and maybe the attorney general at that point, And then she would have standing and sovereign immunity would be waived. And they're like, well, no, you see, then she has a malpractice claim against her doctor. You have to actually show that your problem is with the law and the doctor's confusion over the law, not the doctor just not knowing what life-threatening means, which is such a silly argument given what we're talking about here. But then the case, the Cox case that we actually have in front of us is exactly what they said it needed to be, right? Here you right. have a woman who actually has what could be uh, you know, the impairment of a major bodily function, her future fertility. Certainly, that's a major bodily function for a woman. She gets the TRO. Then they stay it for a week. First of all, if this is actually life-threatening or might impair a major bodily function, this is not how this can work. We can't have temporary restraining orders that then get stayed and she has to sit around and twiddle her thumbs as she's going to the emergency room four times. And that's why, for those who have followed this story, you may know she left the state and got the abortion in a different state. She, she felt like she had run out of time. Right to actually protect herself. This doesn't work, David. It's not working. Can I offer a, um, a bit of a, I haven't seen this interpretation yet, and you tell me if you think I've, I've lost my mind um, on this interpretation. I don't think this holding is ultimately going to be what Texas wants it to be. Now, we'll see what, and especially what Ken Paxton wants it to be. Now, we'll see about what Texas does in this other case. But if you read it carefully, it seems to be saying, wait a minute, we want we don't want any part of this. This is del this is this is the this is the key paragraph. Um the laws reflect these laws, the uh, Texas uh, abortion statutes, reflect a policy choice that the legislature has made, and the courts must respect that choice. Part of the legislature's choice is to permit a significant significant exception to the general prohibition against abortion. And it has delegated to the medical rather than the legal profession the decision about when a woman's medical circumstances warrant this exception. That's the key sentence. And it is delegated to the medical rather than the legal profession that the decision about when a woman's medical circumstances warrant this exception. If you take that strip away some of the word salad about whether saying good faith, I good faith believe the statute's requirements are met rather than quoting the statute's requirements when you state your good faith belief. Doesn't this now hold essentially that now what a doctor has, all the doctor has to do is say it is in a good, in my reasonable medical judgment, this is um, abortion is warranted and you don't have anything more to say about it, judges because it was delegated to the medical rather than the legal profession, this decision. So in other words, does this send a message to the medical profession in Texas that look, the only thing you need to do is the magic words, and then if the magic words are there, it's essentially unreviewable? Isn't, is that kind of an outcome of this case? Or am I, am I missing something here, Sarah? I think that's absolutely the outcome, but would you be willing to risk life in prison to say that's the the outcome? Yeah, because I don't think Ken Paxton agrees this is the outcome. Correct. 
Yeah. And that's the issue. And you've got this other pending case where Mm -hmm. they challenged, they basically asked the court for clarification on what the law means. They did not challenge it for vagueness. The court, one of the justices at one point asked, like, shouldn't you have challenged this on vagueness grounds, which would knock out the whole law, by the way. Right. Um, So when that opinion comes down, it will basically undo this Cox opinion, by the way. Don't forget it was a PC, like, if someone's name isn't on it, it just carries so much less weight. Um, I read it the same way you did, David, but I will tell you, it seems to me that we see the distortion of having elected justices in what you mm-hmm. just said, because you're right. They're like, look, if the doctor says that yeah, the law says reasonable, you know, medical judgment, if you're saying it's a reasonable medical judgment, then we our job is done here. Like as long as you said that. Yeah. But because they're elected, they had to find in this case that somehow the abortion wasn't allowed because otherwise they would get primary from the right. Yes. All nine are Republicans and the ad rights itself, right? Mm -hmm. Justice fill in the blank voted to allow a woman to have an abortion at 20 weeks. That's it. That's all the ad's going to say. So they had to do both, right? They had to get it off their plate and make sure that they weren't going to get whacked from the right. And that's why all things being equal... No system is perfect when it comes to picking justices, I think. There's real problems with lifetime appointed justices that are through sort of uh, political connections. I don't think that's great. But electing justices, well, here's the downside, I think. Well, and and again, this is one of those cases that, you know, longtime AO listeners will know that you can't just look at the case and say, who won, who lost, right? And I'm going to be happy or sad based on who won or who lost. And the pro-life movement is very happy that uh, they're not happy she left the state for abortion, but they're very they're happy with this outcome Um, because, you know, I've seen a lot of arguments online that trisomy is not always fatal. Um, About 10 percent of trisomy 18 patients who are born live a substantial period of time. One year, 10 less than 10 percent will live to a year. Right. So. It's almost always immediately fatal. When it is not immediately fatal, it is almost always fatal very soon after birth. And there's a very, very small number of people for whom uh, they continue to live uh, beyond a year. But so there's a lot of argument about the the prospects of a, of a baby with trisomy 18. Uh, of course, there's on the pro-life side a lot of energy around defending pro-life statutes. But here's what I, I really wish, Sarah, and I'm, I'm, I'm begging my pro-life friends, colleagues, peers, I'm pro-life. It is not a, you can't draft a terrible statute and then pass a terrible statute. And when somebody says, this statute is vague and a real mess, and you say, but I'm pro-life, that's not, that doesn't cleanse you of the obligation of competence, Okay. And in fact, in many ways, I'd argue if you're pro-life and you are very keen on not just saving children's lives, but also winning hearts and minds, which, by the way, is an indispensable element of the pro-life movement. You're not going to be able to get away from it. Uh, I don't care how much you tweet about murder and things like that. You're going to have to win over hearts and minds. Isn't there like a really high obligation on you to get this right so that you're not facing this, you know, that that's the thing that bothers me. You know, if you look at a lot of these internal squabbles and there are some great folks who are proposing good legislation out there, Sarah, who understand the complexities a bit more. And then there's a lot of 
just a lot of stupidity and aggression. Um, and I would say stupidity masked by aggression. In other words, hey, this statute's got problems. Squish. What are you, a squish? You don't like to save babies? No, wait. Have you read the statute? It doesn't make the most sense. Squish. Rhino. I mean, okay, that's, come on, guys. Read the statute. And you explain to me in plain English what it means to have a life-threatening condition that's only about a serious uh, impairment of a bodily function. Like, how does that get into, how did, parse that for me, please. And are you going to tell me and look me in the eyes and say, this is the best way we could draft this statute? Um, So it's a mess. So the statute's a mess. And as you're pointing out, Sarah, even though there are elements of this decision that are actually kind of clear, like when when it says, wait, reasonable medical judgment, that's just medical. Why are we in it? That's a kind of a clear statement. But then there are other portions of it that, as you said, were a word salad. Don't you owe an obligation to people when the stakes are this high to be clear and to be precise and to use coherent reasoning and logic when freaking life in prison is at stake for the doctors adjudicating this and life and death is at stake for mothers and children? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code advisory at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I wanted to address Ken Paxton's argument uh, from the Attorney General's office that because she would carry a healthy child to term in this situation, that it is actually the child's diagnosis that is causing the abortion and not the health and safety issue. And I I think it's interesting because there's something to it, right? That's not a Mm -hmm. frivolous argument. But again, it misses sort of this medical reality that is pregnancies that have problems like trisomy 18 diagnosis often come with more complications. That's why she's been in the emergency room. Very few women with healthy pregnancies are going to be in the emergency room four times at 20 weeks. Right. Something is wrong with the fetus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's why this is all tied together. And David, I will just say as a punchline here, because we've (laughs) 
We've gotten many emails about this, and I didn't actually address it during the whole Dobbs thing. But I'm willing to address it now. Okay. People have asked me where I fall on this issue. And the reason I didn't address it is because it's it was hard for me to articulate exactly where I was, which is that I'm pro-life. But what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, here's what it means. You finally have pinned me down. I'm not for this. Right. And if I consider myself pro-life and don't agree with this opinion, don't agree with this statute and how it's at least being currently interpreted by the attorney general, these, I am the women you're losing, conservative pro-life women who were like, whoa, 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 I've actually been pregnant. What are you even talking about? That high blood pressure is so common that now that you just have to like take the risk of? What? This is insane. This is going, and, and now I'm going to echo something that the other side says. This is going to kill women. Because the doctors are not going to be willing to risk life in prison because it might be life-threatening. You know, you have high blood pressure, but let's just see how it goes for a little while. That's, again, how you're going to end up with preeclampsia. And once that happens, you've got minutes, maybe a few hours. You do not have days for doctors to decide how life-threatening it is. They needed to decide that before. Yeah, I, Sarah, I'm, I'm not for this either. Okay, I'm pro-life. I'm not for this. You know, guys, you know, here, here, so let me, let's talk about the Ken Paxton point. And the Ken Paxton point is actually incompatible with the Texas Supreme Court opinion, ultimately, because the Texas Supreme Court opinion isn't actually evaluating these various specific issues. It's just saying it's up to the doctor that he just had to use the magic words. Um, that's the Texas Supreme Court opinion. I doubt that'll be their ultimate holding. It might be. And that's the problem. We'll see. Again. And we'll cover it. We weren't maybe going to, but now we will. Yeah. Yeah. Now we will. <laughs> You've got my attention, Scotex. Yeah. Now we will. <laughs> and to and th there's actually an answer, I think, to the Ken Paxton issue, which is the whether or not something is a serious medical itch issue or uh, in, in the exercise of their reasonable medical judgment is a serious medical issue is not the same thing as then therefore saying every time there's a serious medical issue, a woman will choose to abort. That's right. If this had been a healthy fetus, she may well have said like, well, I'll, if, risk, I'll, risk, I'll risk not being able to have a fourth child if I can get this yeah. one to term or to 30 weeks right. or, you know, and, and the emergency room visits, you know, I, I will take on that risk myself. Right. But it, Ken Paxton doesn't get to decide whether she takes on that risk. That's exactly it. So if the issue is it's in the exercise of reasonable me medical judgment, there is a serious issue, then that ends the state's yeah. involvement, period. And then it becomes completely a risk, uh, a risk analysis on the part of the woman. Right. That's the way. I mean, there's women who forego chemotherapy to continue carrying a yes. baby to term, even though yes. it highly raises their chance of dying. Yes, I've known women like that. I've known women who've died um, because they carried a child to term and allowed a cancer to run unchecked. And then by the time they started receiving treatment, it was too late. But that was, that was their judgment. That's not Ken Paxton's choice. Right, exactly. And so if the question is, what is the reasonable medical judgment with a clear statute, there that's the law, right? And so the Texas Supreme Court seems to be saying as of right now, with this other case pending, something that is, hey, it's all up to you doctors. But again, we have to wait and see. And that is, that's what's so frustrating about this, Sarah, is 
there was overwhelming evidence that this was much riskier than normal. As you were saying, there's four uh, trips to the emergency room. You have a, a child who is almost certainly incompatible with life, real concern about future. And look, I do not take lightly at all, at all, the life of the child inside of her. Not at all. And I don't know what I would do if it were me for what that's worth. Right, right. I don't know. I really, and I've, I've struggled with that since we knew we were going to talk about this. I can't give you an answer. I mean, you know, we, we faced a moment um, with, with our granddaughter where we didn't know. We knew there were life-threatening, um, there was a life-threatening series of life-threatening birth defects. We didn't know if it was going to be a trisomy uh, situation. And Camille made an immediate choice. I'm carrying this baby. I'm not doing any one more thing to add additional risk, including the amniocentesis that could have defined much more specifically what the condition was. Um, but the question I have is under a circumstance where maybe we knew there was incompatibility with life and the physical condition that, our, that she was in was much worse than the physical condition that she was actually in, you know, what's then? And then the question becomes, how much say should Ken Paxton have on that versus <laughs> Sorry, I'm the laughing doctor? Not it's and, funny, obviously. I'm, I'm laughing at the no, absurdity I know, I know. of injecting Ken Paxton into that conversation. Um, yeah, I, um, I, I will also say, again, with I don't know any women who haven't had miscarriages. And David, I've talked about my miscarriage um, and ectopic pregnancy on this podcast before. But I will also say like a trisomy 18 diagnosis and four trips to the emergency room. This was going to end anyway. I'll just like, mm -hmm. I'm not a doctor, but I know lots of women. And like mm -hmm. severe cramping, blood, like, well, let me tell you what's happening. Like, so in some ways, like you don't need to worry as a pro-life person how this pregnancy was going to end because unfortunately it was always going to end one way. Right. Um, so, okay, we'll wait for that Texas Supreme Court opinion. Here's my hope. I hope that they do not kick it on standing. Right. And I certainly hope that they don't find that they cannot provide clarity in the law because of either that lack of standing. And remember, state standing, not the same as federal standing. We haven't gone over that a whole ton, but like they're different issues. Yeah. Um, you know, because they didn't sort of use again the magic words that they were challenging this under a void for vagueness concept that like, well, now we're not going to clarify this. Um, you didn't challenge it as vague and like the law says what it says and we're just gonna have to wait for prosecutions. Like they have a responsibility to answer the question here. So, um, yeah. Yeah, they do have a response. And here's the other responsibility, Sarah. Texas legislature, you have a responsibility to write a law that makes sense. <laughs> and, you know. I'll bet you money. Can I just like put some money on the table here that what happened was that yeah. somebody only wanted the life-threatening exception and enough other people wanted the impairment of a major bodily function exception. And that's how it got written that way. And they were like, well, we'll let the courts decide exactly what that means. Dollars to donuts. Yeah, and that it's, it's wild language. It's it's wild language. And so the problem is if they're going to include the serious bodily function exception, they're going to have to leave room for medical judgment unless they list all of those exceptions. It's very quite specifically. But even then, it, they would have to probably add a catch all additional uh, statement. So it is. But 
all I know is this, what the statute should ultimately read is very different from how this statute reads. And if you're going to impose a life sentence on somebody for violation of the statute, you owe them clarity. At the very least, you owe them clarity. And that's anything but clear. And so, yeah, it's just really, it's really frustrating. And I think, Sarah, this is in a microcosm emblematic of why the pro-life movement is facing sort of a series of catastrophic losses in elections across America. It's because you look at a situation like this and you dive into it and not even the underlying law is clear enough for someone to rely upon. And I can't even, you know, and you, please be competent, guys. Just please be competent. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Speaking of needing clarity, special counsel Jack Smith has appealed directly to the Supreme Court from a uh, motion, uh, denying a motion from Judge Tanya Chuckin at the D.C. District Court. So this is about President Trump's argument that he is absolutely immune from prosecution because he was president at the time of the actions that he's being charged with between the election and January 6th. And I'll just remind everyone what the actions that he's being charged with, aside, you know, putting aside the statutes here. Um, this is from Judge Chutkin's opinion that was issued December 1. First, they, meaning Trump and others, First, they used knowingly false claims of election fraud to get state legislators and election officials to subvert the legitimate election results and change the electoral votes for the defendant's opponent, Joseph R. Biden, to electoral votes for the defendant. Second, they organized fraudulent state electors in seven states attempting to mimic the procedures that the legitimate electors were supposed to follow under the Constitution and other federal state laws. Third, they attempted to use the power and authority of the Justice Department to conduct sham election crime investigations and to send a letter to the targeted state that falsely claimed that the Justice Department had identified significant concerns that may have impacted the election outcome. Fourth, using knowingly false claims of election fraud, they attempted to convince the vice president to use the defendant's fraudulent electors, reject legitimate electoral votes, or send legitimate electoral votes to state legislatures for review rather than counting them. 
5th, on the afternoon of January 6th, once a large and angry crowd, including many individuals whom the defendant has deceived into believing the vice president could and might change the electoral results, violently attacked the Capitol and halted the proceedings. They exploited the disruption by redoubling efforts to levy false claims of election fraud and convince members of Congress to further delay the certification based on those claims. Okay, so she denied entirely the claim of absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for actions performed within the outer perimeter of a president's official responsibility. Now, Jack Smith has taken that and said, instead of going to the D.C. Circuit, I'm going directly to the Supreme Court and asking for something called cert before judgment. This isn't common, but it's not that rare anymore, David, either. Right. And so I saw a lot of headlines, like, an extremely rare move by the special counsel. <laughs> and I was like, well, there. Oh, I like that voice, Sarah. Could you also do that for, we've got a monster truck rally on Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday. Uh, so he filed an 81-page brief saying, we got to do this. And I'll just read a little bit from the, uh, the statement at the top. This case presents a fundamental question at the heart of our democracy, whether a former president is absolutely immune from federal prosecution for crimes committed while in office or is constitutionally protected from federal prosecution when he has been impeached but not convicted before the criminal proceeding began. The district court rejected respondents' claims, correctly recognizing that former presidents are not above the law and are accountable for their violations of federal criminal law while in office. Respondents' appeal of the ruling rejecting his immunity and related claims, however, suspends the trial of the charges against him scheduled to begin on March 4th. It is of imperative public importance that respondents' claim of immunity be resolved by this court and that respondents' trial proceed as promptly as possible if his claims of immunity are rejected. Okay, David, so we've got a couple things here. There's the underlying merits, fine, but there's also the does this court wait and let the D.C. Circuit do this in the regular order. Uh, the D.C. Circuit can move quite quickly. We've already seen them move quickly, for instance, on the gag order question. And this, by the way, remember, the D.C. Circuit did rule on the gag order. This is the presidential immunity thing. For some reason, I tripped myself up. And I was like, but wait, we just had a D.C. Circuit opinion. Lots of moving parts in this case. Um, okay, so just on the process question, remember, A, it takes four votes for cert. So you've got to count to four here. Second, emergency docket stuff is disfavored. And this isn't technically an emergency docket, but similar vibes in terms of not following regular order. And third, there's a reason that justices like to get circuit opinions, because these are their very, very smart colleagues that they respect taking a whack at it so they can be like, ah, well, I didn't like that, or I did like that, or I hadn't thought of that issue. It's basically like having more briefing. Um, by people who aren't advocates themselves. So what do you think, David? Are they going to take it? Um, I think they will. I think they will. It was interesting. I mean, I had this moment on Monday where I honestly misread the uh, Supreme Court's order. It says petitioner's motion to expedite consideration of the petition for writ of certiorari, writ of certiorari before judgment is granted. And I kind of, skipped some of the middle of the language and I immediately, I almost missed, I misread it for a moment that the writ was granted. No, no, no. It was just the motion to expedite consideration of the petition for the writ that was granted. So Donald Trump has to answer this 81 page petition by Wednesday, December 20th. Right. 
I I think they'll I think they'll grant it, Sarah. I I again with all Supreme Court ca- uh, predictions caveat. I don't know, but I think that they will. Um, if they don't, I feel like there's probably a high likelihood the trial gets pushed. Right. So then that like let's assume we were just doing the political valence. Um, you know, use my two axes, if you will. So let's just think about the bottom uh, axis. Donald Trump does not want the Supreme Court to take this. He wants it to go through the D.C. No. circuit, and then he wants it to go to the yes. Supreme Court because he wants us to drag out as long as possible. So if we were just using that bottom axis, you've got three votes to take this. Because, <laughs> um, like, it needs to move as quickly as possible. Yes. And look, when I talked about why they the Supreme Court likes lower courts to weigh into this and write their own opinions, that's true. But if the Supreme Court knows they're going to take something no matter what, it does put a thumb on the other side of the scale, at least a little bit of weight of like, look, if we're going to do this anyway, let's just do it. Why waste the D.C. Circuit's time having to write an opinion um, that, you know, we don't need? Uh, Okay, so on that bottom axis, you've got three votes to take it. So now the question is on the top and the Y axis, can you find one vote? Is this a high institutionalism concern? Because, uh, you know, for the good of the country, this needs to get resolved faster. We don't want the trial delayed. Or is it a low institutionalist concern that like we don't need the D.C. Circuit's opinion anyway? I will tell you that I think it's a high institutionalist uh, argument here to take the case. So then you're looking at the chief Kavanaugh and Barrett, can you get one of them? You can get more, but can you get one to peel off and say yes? So Sarah, can I engage in some rank speculation for a moment? Okay, it's, I would say, informed rank speculation, but still rank speculation because I'm reading tea leaves. Mm -hmm. Um, John Roberts is over Trump. Um, I can't repeat all the stories that I know about the court sometimes, but yes, he is. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) John Roberts is over Donald Trump. And that was obvious during the Trump administration. Because if you look at some of the Roberts evaluations of the Trump administrative actions, he's just over it. I think he has a view of the Trump administration, very similar to the view that I expressed of, uh, the Texas legislature and the way this whole thing played out in Texas, which is like, get it together. You are embarrassing us is sort of the view of a John Roberts. And, you know, you saw it in these administrative cases and things like this. But I don't think it's going to be hard to reach for the one, the other to make it four. The question is, would he want to be the fourth if he's not certain? And, you know, if if he's got real questions about the outcome. Um, so yeah, I think there's a four there, sir. Okay. So that's on the process question. Now switch over to the merits question and we'll just do a very cursory because I think, I think we'll be talking about this one quite a bit. I think so. Yeah. But cursory exploration here. Again, you want to use that bottom axis. Fine. You've got your three votes. There's no presidential immunity. Now on that Y axis on presidential immunity, I think things move pretty substantially. So like the idea that Gorsuch, for instance, is going to want to maximize presidential power with absolute immunity? I don't think so. Um, that at least, you know, again, I'm, I'm taking this out of the current context, out of uh, literally like the post-election stuff, what he's being charged with. This is now just a question on how, on how immune are presidents while they're in office. Um, I think you could see a real flipping of that, that like actually the high institutionalists 
um, are going to be sort of in favor of a more robust presidential immunity because you don't want presidents getting sued in a, you know, in the general sense um, or thinking they're going to get sued or charged with all manner of thing. And let me just read again the one that I've continued to have real questions about, which is that number three, they attempted to use the power and authority of the Justice Department to conduct sham election crime investigations. Well, who gets to determine whether they're sham investigations? So we now get to charge presidents anytime they ask the Department of Justice to open investigations, whether the department does or not, by the way, because that's a sham. Like what? So I, I don't really understand why some version of presidential immunity wouldn't cover. Like that's an official act. That's not on the outer perimeters. Can I just throw a big complicator into yeah. this that just came up in my news alert? The Supreme Court agreed on Wednesday to decide a question at the heart of the federal election interference case against former President Donald Trump and hundreds of prosecutions arising from the assault on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Can the government charge defendants in those cases under a federal law that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official congressional proceeding? So this is that statute that we've talked about before, the corruptly and the yes. uh, seriatim list of documents, yada, yada, or other. <laughs> um, so they had taken a version of this before. But yes, this is um, this will also impact the criminal trial, which we've said. So um, so I don't know, David, my point is, I guess, on the I think it's a little easier on the process side. And I think it's a little bit more of a jump ball on the merit side and definitely will be an interesting oral argument. No, it will be very, very interesting. And that cert grant is a big complicator for one of the counts because you've got, it's going to be heard this term, probably not decided until after the trial date. That's right. That is currently set. This is an interesting complicator, raises some real tactical questions uh, for Jack Smith. Um, yeah, boy, it's it just got less likely the trial happens. I've been uh, everyone finds me very unpopular, but I've been saying it's not going to yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, that cert grant just made it less likely um, for sure. OK, so, David, there was a dissent on denial of cert about this Oregon law. Justice Thomas dissenting from the denial of certiorari. Justice Kavanaugh also would have voted to grant the petition for a writ of certiorari. Also, Justice Alito. So there were three votes. Now, I think I talked about this before, but there used to be this thing called a courtesy fourth. Right. At the U.S. Supreme Court, that if you've got three votes for cert, like just someone throw in the fourth so that way it can be heard. The courtesy fourth seems to have died. And I mean dead. Like it is now... <laughs> It passed any resuscitation hope. Um, there's no life support. It's rotting in the ground. <laughs> and uh, here you may find it, RIP, courtesy fourth, because you've got Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh wanting to grant cert, and you're telling me <laughs> they couldn't get Gorsuch or Barrett or the chief? Yeah. Courtesy fourth, this one. Okay, courtesy fourth is dead. David, do you want to introduce what this is about? Yeah, this is essentially about when somebody, a, a uh, counselor is counseling clients who suffer from gender dysphoria, um, who are having difficulty accepting their biological sex. And the question is whether or not a licensed counselor can assist minors who suffer from gender dysphoria, but want to be comfortable with their biological sex. That's the quote, want to become comfortable with their biological sex. 
And so in other words, uh, a client comes in, they says, I don't feel comfortable in my body. I'm a man, but I, I don't feel comfortable in my I, biological sex. I want to feel comfortable in my biological sex. And there are in, in, this, in the state, essentially that Washington is saying, you can't counsel them to become comfortable in their biological sex according to their wishes. That is la labeled to be quote, conversion therapy uh, as a regime that seeks to change an indiv individual sexual orientation or gender identity. It's extremely broadly worded law um, that at the bottom line holds that a mi helping a minor become comfortable with his or her biological sex is prohibited, even if they want it, okay? And so the question was, does that violate the free speech rights of the counselors? And I think it's the easiest answer in the world, Sarah, is yes, okay? It's, it's, it's yes. And if you, if you deny, if you don't think that it's yes, let me reverse it. And let's say that Alabama says to counselors that if somebody comes in and they're struggling with their gender identity and Alabama says, you have to counsel them to accept their biological sex. You may not counsel them to uh, accept their gender identity. They have to be counseled, counseled towards biological sex. A lot of people on the other side would immediately flip around and say, why are you suppressing the free speech of counselors who are using their best counseling judgment on this issue? Now, I do agree that there are forms of conversion therapy, like true conversion therapy that are awful. Um, I am not denying that at all. This statute is so broadly written. Again, Sarah, what are we back to? A very similar theme that the statute is so broadly written that it's just scooping up an awful lot of what would clearly be protected speech, even the speech that the client came to the counselor for, wanted from the counselor. Um, would be excluded, prohibited, punishable. And uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll just read from Justice Thomas's denial from dissent. There's little question that F SB 5722 regulates speech and therefore implicates the First Amendment. True, counseling is a form of therapy, but it is conducted solely through speech. If speaking to clients is not speech, the world is truly upside down. SB 572, 5722 sanctions speech directly, not incidentally, the only conduct at issue is speech. It is a fundamental principle that governments have no power to restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. And what they, and then Justice Thomas says, the Ninth Circuit attempted to side, sidestep this framework by concluding that counseling is unprotected by the First Amendment because states have traditionally regulated the practice of medicine. Pause. Is that the rule you really want? I'm asking that of all sides here. <laughs> is that the rule? I know there are people who look at the outcome who are, who are very much uh, believe that affirming uh, trans kids is the only, the only humane, decent thing to do. Um, but remember, what did the Ninth Circuit do? It essentially said that counseling is unprotected. So what you're doing here is you're giving other states a blank check to exact enact mirror image opposite laws here. So 
this idea that counseling is unprotected is has resonance, as Justice Thomas noted, with the NIFLA case, National Institute of Family and Life Advocates. This was the Crisis Pregnancy Center case where California was attempting to require crisis pregnancy centers to advertise for state-funded free or low-cost abortions and tried to argue that this compulsion of speech, which would otherwise ordinarily be completely illegal, is legal because they were just, they were regulating medical speech or professional speech, a separate category of speech. And this is something that the Supreme Court in NIFLA, that was an argument the Supreme Court rejected in NIFLA. And so it's a, I'm, I'm with Justice Thomas here. I mean, it, it's very difficult for me to see how this is not speech. Now, that's not granting a blank check that all forms of conversion therapy are the same. No. Um, but this idea that, that, by def- that this is not speech, this is counseling, is fundamentally not protected speech. Yikes, Sarah. Yikes. Um, so here's what's weird about this to me, David. Not a lot of heat on the page from Justice Thomas no. and not from Justice Alito either. Justice Alito wrote separately, no. dissenting from the denial of certiorari. Like Justice Thomas, I would grant the petition for a writ of certiorari. This case presents a question of national importance. In recent years, 20 states in the District of Columbia have adopted laws prohibiting or restricting the practice of conversion therapy. It is beyond dispute that these laws restrict speech and all restrictions on speech merit careful scrutiny. There's a circuit split. For these reasons, this case easily satisfies our established criteria for granting certiorari, and I would grant review. Well, that's not very spicy, Justice Alito. And it leads me to this conclusion, (laughs) David. They've got a different vehicle. Oh. Because in the Ninth Circuit, remember, there's the panel opinion, the one you talked about. Then there's the petition for en banc review, where you have the uh, statement by Judge O'Scanlan, where he would have granted en banc review. That was joined by a couple other judges on the Ninth Circuit. Then you've got that Bumate dissent. Anytime Bumate is dissenting on the Ninth Circuit, like it's like straight shot to the Supreme Court these days. Right. More so than really any other judge on the Ninth Circuit, in my um, not data-filled opinion. <laughs> Just casual observance. Um, There's a circuit split. This is a clear issue. Justice Alito doesn't sound spicy at all. They've got a different vehicle that's coming up that um, is not on my radar. And maybe it's not going to be in the conversion therapy context. Maybe it's going to be different uh, professional speech, um, for instance. But uh, nobody seems too worried about this on the court. So I'm not going to be worried either. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's interesting. No, I that th- that's a I missed that, Sarah. I was, but you're right. And and looking at this, it's not spicy Alito. Justice Thomas is not bringing the high heat, <laughs> which he knows how to do. I mean, God knows we've seen both yeah. of them on dissents from denial, like bring a fastball. So if yeah. they're not worried, I'm not worried. Um, all yeah. right, David. Well, do you remember during the Trump administration there was this ongoing joke about Transportation Week? Every week was transportation week and then they never got to it because some other emergency (laughs) popped up. So our conversation about SEC v. Jerkacy, Moore and Purdue Pharma, it's transportation week. We didn't get to it this episode once again. So sorry. Our our list continues to grow. Um, But David, before we go, I did want to talk about two other things. One, uh, before we hopped on this podcast, we were talking about the death of an actor who is uh, best known for a lot of recent stuff. 
but who you and I remember most, and I'm sure a lot of listeners of this podcast just guessing that y'all are like us and find the movie Glory to be, if not your number one movie of all time, certainly in your top 10. It's incredible. Uh, And he was uh, a major actor in the movie Glory with a fantastic performance and he passed away. And so just a nice reminder to go rewatch the movie Glory. My son is not old enough to watch Glory, but as soon as I think he is, we're on it. Yeah, I will never forget as long as I live watching that movie for the first time. And it was amazing start to finish. But I remember the scene and and anyone who's seen Glory remembers the scene. And this is Denzel Washington, who was kind of a rebellious uh, Union soldier. And at one point, he's ordered to be whipped. And uh, wow, that scene, like I can't even talk about it without choking up um, how his shirt is stripped from him. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> David actually is choking up. I can yeah. see it. It's yeah, it's it's unreal that scene, and it's also because the topic that's coming up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but and you know, in watching that movie, the enormity of what slavery was, you know, impacted my young mind in a way it had never done it before. Because everything else was like reading stuff, mm-hmm. right? You know, like you're reading about stuff, and then the way they portrayed it, um. And that moment stands out to everybody like that moment. It was just that one moment with Denzel Washington that stood out so much. But but the Andre Brower performance of Captain, I mean, of Corporal Thomas Searles from start to finish was magnificent, just magnificent. He was Thomas. He was Matthew Broderick's friend and a scholar, a bookish man who said, I'm going, you know, I'm signing up. And the bat the the movie ends at the Battle of Fort Wagner, where tragically they just all are. You know, I'm not. It's a 1989 movie of the Horstoral event that occurred in 1860, so I'm not spoiling anything. Where they're just all killed, and but it was still, you know, one of the most inspirational movies I've ever seen in my entire life. So we watched it in junior high, like you know, when class when the teachers like were watching a movie because she's like yeah. feeling lazy. Except this was not feeling lazy. Yeah. This was like the movie had just come out. Um, a couple years earlier and she like had just come out on VHS basically and she was like stop everything we have to watch this movie um, it was incredible and I at the end they show the I don't know what the term for the art is um, but the bronze it's not a statue it's like a relief yeah um, that's in Boston of the Massachusetts 54th and I saw that and she told me it was in Boston and I was like well then I have to go live in Boston someday and it was in that moment that I decided I must at some point in my life live in Boston. How how funny is that? So um, had a, it actually did have this big impact on my life, uh, aside from even just the historical part. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's one of those things. It's a shame that the main and and well, listeners tell me, I hope that the main memorial of the 54th, the primary memorial of the 54th isn't confined to Boston, because this is one of my hobby horses, Sarah. These Union soldiers fought and died all over the South, all over the South. They didn't die in Massachusetts. They died in South Carolina. They died in Virginia. They died in Tennessee. They died in Mississippi. Where are their memorials? There. Because these are American soldiers on American soil, you know, and, and I think that's one of the things that just lo- gets lost in the monument debate, which is usually about what are we going to tear down? I'm asking a whole different question. 
when are we going to build more? Oh, I would love to have a Massachusetts 54th Memorial in South Carolina. Yeah, that would be incredible. And listeners will tell me if there is one. I think I I have a, I long ago, I went to the site, uh, I was in Charleston, I believe Fort Wagner's outside of Charleston. So, this yeah. is distant memory. And I've been through all of that and I don't remember seeing one. Maybe there is one now. Here in Franklin, we have a very, very, very tall uh, statue of a Confederate soldier, but we just recently um, erected a statue, a, a smaller statue, but beautifully done of a Union soldier, a black soldier in the Union Army. That And I just love that we did that, but we need to do more. Um, we do need to do more. Uh, by the way, I did not know this, but the Massachusetts 54th Memorial that's in Boston of Robert Goldshaw um, was uh, defaced during the George Floyd protests. Gosh, man, oh man. Well, David, this brings us to another topic that um, we yes. need to talk about on this podcast. So yeah. we had left it to to Nancy, your wonderful wife, to sort of make her public yeah. announcement. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, we Nancy made a public announcement because we haven't exactly kept the secret and word was getting out and we're starting to get a lot of people sending us messages but um, before a couple, a week or two before Thanksgiving, Nancy was diagnosed with breast cancer, a pretty aggressive kind called triple negative. Uh, listeners who have, who sadly have experience in this area will know what that means. It's a, it's a, it's not conducive to certain kinds of newer treatments. And so you kind of have to go really old school with the major chemo. And it just kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, it had spread a little bit, but thankfully, has not gone metastatic. In other words, it's not outside of the breast and lymph node region, so far as we know. And uh, she started chemo right. Uh, you know, we we got the the diagnosis, got a bunch of of um, tests run, and she started chemo almost immediately. So she's in the middle of chemo now, and we have a lot of um, a lot of reason for hope. Uh, she's handling the chemo really well, uh, surprisingly well so far. She's She's young. She's 49. Uh, she's handling the chemo really well so far, but we got a long road ahead of us uh, about six months before surgery. And um, so Nancy just did a really, I thought, just very sweet and beautifully written announcement that she put on Twitter and on threads. And Sarah, I got to tell you, um, there's been a lot of toxicity on social media. Not this week. Not this week. And Either the trolls just went completely silent, which is com which is fine by me. <laughs> it's totally fine by me. But we've even gotten some really kind notes from 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 some frankly quite surprising quarters, and um, that's just been really gratifying. People have been have really rallied around her, sort of in the public sense. And then where we live here, we have just such a fabulous network of friends and family that have really rallied around her as well. And so. You know, but as Nancy was saying, when drive, driving back from chemo last time, she just doesn't see how like, you know, the single moms out there, you know, uh, the people who have less of a support system, how do they do it? You know, how, how does this, how do they just handle sort of the day in, day out grind of it all? Because it is a grind. Um, but we just share that with you guys. Appreciate you guys and would very much appreciate your prayers and good wishes for Nancy. 
Well, David, I certainly speak for the entire AO community, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people in the comments with more eloquent eloquent ways to say this, but um, Ron, your team, man. Thank you. Just totally and completely. Um, and whatever time you need, everything else, like, you know, you've got it. And um, you just couldn't have a more loyal, loving, cheering squad than your AO family. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's just been so gratifying. And so thank you guys in advance for your prayers and good wishes. And with that, Transportation Week will continue at the next episode <laughs> as we <laughs> maybe someday get to talk about the oral arguments uh, from this past session. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.